This will be my last record. It'll get terrible reviews. It'll sell nothing. I'll tour for a couple of weeks and then I'll probably go back to school and try and get a PhD so I can teach philosophy. And then my mom died. It was so very, very dark time. And then the album came out and it ended up, it, rather than sell nothing, it sold 12 million copies, which was great, but that actually precipitated my bottoming out Maybe you didn't know that I was gone, but I was. I am, actually. I'm coming to you from Montreal, Canada. But the podcast had not been releasing every week for the last four weeks, but we are back. We're back with new episodes. Not only that, my other podcast, Spiraling, is in full swing, if you want to go listen to that. It's really good to be here. And let's get right into today's episode because Moby is here. You know Moby, the award-winning punk rocker turned electrona artist who sold more than 20 million records across the globe. Well, he's joining us today. And he's joining us in podcasting by starting his own show that he co-hosts with my new friend, after meeting her on the conversation you're about to hear momentarily, Lindsay Hicks. Lindsay Hicks is an environmentalist, a sustainability expert, my new friend, and Moby's co-host on the show called MobyPod. And at the end of this episode, you're going to hear an alternate name. We talk a little bit about the show and the concept and they're really easy to listen to, which you're about to hear in a second, but I listened to a bunch of episodes when I was preparing for this and they just did a live episode and they're great. They talk about everything from, you know, Moby's story of what it was like to go on tour with David Bowie to panic attacks. And in this conversation, we honestly run the full spectrum of topics similarly. And we, we could have talked even longer, but it's really long as is. I went over to Moby's house a couple months ago now and met them for the first time, stayed for hours. And that's the conversation you're about to hear. You know, a real thread through this is perspective and self-awareness as Moby shares some of these stories of, you know, getting sober and getting famous and having a lot of money and and what that did for his mental health and subsequently after that. And Lindsay shares her perspective, also sort of thinking the idea of if I just have, you know, that sort of feeling. And usually that's, it never is. There's always something else. Anyway, I'm going to drop you on into the middle of this conversation and I put the actual beginning at the end. So you'll, you'll hear You'll hear me arrive at the end of the episode. It's a long one, so take your time. I'm just honestly really happy to be back and happy that you're here listening, that you decided to turn on this podcast. 
there's so many and you turn this one on today right now. So I hope it entertains you. I hope it keeps you company. Maybe you learn something. And if so, let me know. Here's my conversation with Moby and Lindsay Hicks. Maybe I'm being too open, but my entire life I've loved people, but I don't like being in a relationship. And so at some point I realized, oh, loving a person doesn't mean you're necessarily someone who is comfortable in relationships. This might sound weird and maybe I'm being too open, but my entire life I've loved people, but I don't like being in a relationship. And I just, it was the most obvious thing. Like I've never once had a relationship where I've been comfortable in the relationship. Mm. Like I've adored the people I've dated, but never once found you know happiness or comfort in a relationship. And that was, I finally admitted that to myself when we were dating. Now, I don't like the idea of casual dating. I think that can just cause a lot of pain and suffering, but I also don't like relationships who knows, maybe that's my attachment from growing up or I don't know what, but nonetheless, I just realized everyone benefits without me trying to have a dating life. Because mm. I was a such a, it, why, why would anyone want to be in a relationship with someone who doesn't like being in relationships? And I, I just can't in good conscience subject anyone to that. Well, you mentioned part of that on something that I read or even listened to in preparing for this, where you just said how it allowed you, you were talking about how you spend your time and you were talking about, you seem very self-aware and like, you know yourself well, and you're able to see these things in retrospect, like you just shared and you, that opens up time for you. I think that's why you brought it up. That's why you're always making music and working and doing so many projects. But it's really interesting. And I, I'm glad that you're you're saying that because I think a lot of people feel that way. And I think relationships can really add a lot to our lives and dating because like if you had never tried it and you were saying that, I think it would be a different conversation. But obviously you have. And I think if, if you didn't have other strong relationships in your life platonically and you know friendships and collaborators then again it would be a different story because of we I think and I'm sure you both agree you know we are social creatures and we need each other mm -hmm. and but I've been it funnily enough I've been thinking about that a lot because of my own experiences and when you're when you're in a relationship you it's a mirror and you constantly have to be growing and changing. And when you, like I do, live alone and work alone, you can get very, you know what you like and you know what you don't like. And then I think it's good sometimes to stretch yourself and that's how we grow. But also if you know that and you know enough about yourself, then maybe that's not what you need. And you don't want to force someone else to do that just because you know it works for you. So I think it's good to, to talk about actually. And yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, and I had the, the realization, as I mentioned, that like, because normally when you love a person, you think, oh, that naturally extends into a relationship. And I know a lot of people who don't like relationships 
will avoid relationships so they can go out and be promiscuous or they can go out and just date a whole bunch of people. And I clearly ethically am not comfortable with that. But as time has passed, I just found myself, I don't know, in a weird way, it reminds me of the process of getting sober because I got sober about 15 years ago. And the cornerstone of sobriety, at least from my perspective, is finally the willingness to look at evidence, which I know some people who are sober might be like, what are you talking about? Sobriety is just about like stopping, you no longer drink and you sit in a church basement with a bunch of people who, and you talk about how you used to drink. It's like, <laughs> well, that's a component of it, but, and I'll try and not ramble on too much because I definitely am prone to rambling on a lot, but the willingness to look at evidence, if you take a step back, no one wants to look at evidence. Like we, and especially we want to hold on to paradoxical ideas. And what I mean by that is like when I was out drinking and doing drugs, I was like, oh, I'm a healthy person. I was like, but I'm drinking 20 drinks a night and spending $300 a day on cocaine. Like, how was I a healthy person? <laughs> and evidence is so, it, it, there are a lot of times when we're unwilling to, or at least I was unwilling to truly reconcile behavior with intention and evidence. And that's what led me to get sober. Finally, I admitted like, oh, I'm an addict. I have to finally admit it and I can no longer drink and do drugs. Mm -hmm. But then with other things, like for example, during the pandemic, I realized, oh, I don't miss socializing. Like I don't miss parties. I don't miss traveling. I really like staying home and working on music and working on activism. And sometimes we feel this pressure of, to state the obvious, of going out, of dating, of being social, of if you can go to red carpet events, travel to exotic places. And I finally had to admit, the evidence is I don't like any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So looking at the evidence around dating, I was like, okay, all objective evidence is that I was terrible at dating. I caused pain and suffering for myself and the people I dated with. And I just shouldn't be, in, that's an institution I shouldn't be involved in. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because part of me is like that takes, like I said, self-awareness and there's a level of self-honesty. And I do think relationships are important. And for you to get to that point, you do have to do it. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And also, even though you didn't like it and even though it wasn't correct for you and you figured that out, like A – there will also take a self-honesty of like, I don't know, maybe one day that will change. And then you'll have to admit yeah. to yourself like, oh, actually, I do want to go to that party and I haven't in a while. Mm -hmm. And then so it, you are in an advanced course where you can't could do that. Yeah. But also like there is a little part of me that's like this. You guys wouldn't have met if you hadn't tried. Oh, you no, know what I'm, I mean? Yeah, I mean, I'm super grateful for that. And I will say to your point. The only dogma that I have, the only rigid dogma I have for my entire life is veganism. Yeah. You know, that's the I've been a vegan now for 35 years. And that's the one thing that to me is unshakable. Like everything else, to your point, is like, yeah, sure. Who knows what the future holds? Yeah. But the vegan, like, I cannot ever think in good conscience of being involved in a process that caused suffering to an animal. But even that is questioning the status quo. I feel like you have this magical ability to question the way that things are. As do you. 
I think that's yeah, yes. But I think you're much better at at the willpower to stop doing things that are the norm. I think in my case, it's just like Asperger's or mental illness. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, you think about it. I think that's why a lot of people don't stop eating meat or continue to drink, even though it's harmful to them or, you know, date when they don't really like to date. Mm -hmm. And I think Moby has been really, really great at saying, this doesn't work for me. It may work for a lot of other people in society, or at least they may think that that it does, but it doesn't work for me. And Moby is also really comfortable going against the grain and doing what's right for him, even when it may be a less than accepted way of doing things or behavioral choice. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And at the same time, I think it's wise, like, and you're, and this is cool that we're having this conversation for one reason. I think I'm really happy about it is platonic friendships and relationships that aren't romantic get so much less airtime in culture and society and are so incredibly important and something I think about a lot is friendship and what's cool about friendship is that there's it's very undefined you know like we all Mm -hmm. have to define it for ourselves and some of those relationships can be bringing you know more making them more romantic and making your there's like a quote about that of making your friendships more romantic and your romantic relationships more friendly and i mm-hmm. think that's actually very wise but i think it's good to just see different to your point lindsay to see different perspectives is really good to be like there's this whole plethora of ways to do this and not everyone has to do it in the way that most people are i think that's very useful but then also there's a kind of gray area where I feel like for me, I don't know. I still want to, tr- even though I don't particular, I think a lot of people don't particularly love dating. It's it's very it's hard and it's, scary. Yeah, it's very anxiety <laughs> producing. And like, I don't know any, I'm, I can kind of talk to a wall and, you know, have recorded oddly like 400 of my conversations. So And even for me as like an extroverted person who's, you know, very talkative and Midwestern, like I don't love it. So for people who are more introverted, it's, you know, probably even Mm -hmm. on another level. All that to say, there's so much of me that's going to wants to leave here and be like, oh, I'm all set with dating too. Like Moby doesn't do it. He's like so prolific. But I think I maybe need to challenge myself because I might, you know, meet Lindsay through, you know what I mean? You never know. And and also, like, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm a lot older, you know, like, so I'm, I'm 57. And I sort of feel like, you know what, I, yeah, I dated for decades, I toured for decades, I went to parties, I drank, I did drugs, I did everything for decades. And to your point earlier, it's like, it may, you have, you have a sort of like empirical well to draw from. So when I'm rejecting something for myself, it's not arbitrary. It's not yeah. saying, oh, I went to, I went on one date and I didn't like it, so I'll never date again. It's like, oh, no, I've got decades of bad yeah. dating experience. So, like, I'm moving past that subjectively based on all the evidence. And, yeah. And again, there's also no judgment or criticism of other people's choices. It's more just we each end up in a different place. 
And who knows, like a week from now, you guys could both be entering monasteries yeah. and I could be getting married. Right. You know. I would love to see that. Be getting. I can't imagine <laughs> what well, that we, would be like. We are. Oh, so on our podcast, on MobyPod, we have a guest coming in next week who I've never met, but I'm a little bit intimidated by and like like i did have a thought like wow if i was dating i would, I would kind of want to maybe get married to this person <laughs> this, this, like, NASA scientist, she's genius. a she's a rocket scientist nasa jpl rocket scientist and i was when i saw that we were interviewing her i looked at her wikipedia page and i was like oh wow she seems amazing having said that she'll probably hate my guts and storm out <laughs> The first Either minutes, way, but. I'll be entertained. Yeah, or maybe Lindsay, maybe you, maybe you and she will get married. Yeah, we just know. never know Yeah, what could happen. We never know, yeah. and we have a time capsule of this moment of our anticipation of <laughs> however this goes is recorded I will here. Say, I love what well, something I love about your approach to all of these things is that you're looking at these experiences as gathering evidence. And I think that's such a healthy way to look yeah. at especially dating, but everything in your life as like finding meaning in what your habits or your actions make you feel and kind of gathering that and using it to make better decisions for yourself. I don't think well, a lot of people do that. And that is something I'm so grateful for is I was doing an interview a few years ago and someone asked me a, a a couple of questions like what are you most what are you most proud of with yourself and if you could go back in your past and change anything what would it be and immediately because I, I assume most people think oh if i could go back to my past i would change all these things and i realized the thing that i'm most proud of or the thing that i'm happiest with is my perspective you know, the which is not objective perspective. I'm not very insightful, but I have a perspective that's the product of experience. And if you value where you are with your current perspective, you can't really want to change anything that's contributed to that perspective, both the good and the bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. I haven't learned anything from good stuff. I've learned so much from bad stuff. And it's just a really interesting thing to recognize that if you value your perspective, you have to be grateful for all of the things that have led you to have your perspective. Yeah. My friend's dad says success teaches you nothing. Yeah. Mm. And I think you just experience. And then there's like a self-honesty level there too, because that's what I was trying to say. Part of me wants to leave here and be like, oh, Moby said I don't have to do this hard thing. <laughs> but you have to, I have to have a self-honesty of like, that's not at all what he said, and <laughs> I heard what I wanted to, and the self-honesty is like, yeah, you should, you need more evidence to, and maybe when I'm 57, I can make that call too, but it's not a call I can make today, although I can challenge the sense of like feeling like I have to and do anything get to suffer for 20 more years <laughs> yeah <laughs> yay, yay I'm suffering. Um, and the, the one thing I will the one presumptuous thing I will challenge myself with you Lindsay not bagel because bagel's perfect by the way people listening bagel is the, a divine 11 pound dog oh who is I know that podcasting is not a visual medium yeah, yeah but bagel is here with us as well and but so the one thing I will challenge people compassionately is to say, like, when you are out, whether it's dating or socializing or doing something 
make sure, and this might seem self-evident, but I, I don't think it is for me, for most people, is make sure that it aligns with your values and that it's empowering to you. You know, because I know for myself, like for years, I would do stuff, even touring, out of a sense of obligation. And obligation can be great if you're like working at a needle exchange program or working at a food bank, but like obligation shouldn't involve socializing. It shouldn't involve dating. It shouldn't involve staying in a toxic relationship. Like none of the, all of those things should benefit you, not be done from a sense of obligation. I feel personally attacked. <laughs> Same. <laughs> no, I, I, that sense of obligation, like how many times have we been in a situation? You're like, you know what? I'm not happy. I'm uncomfortable. I don't like this. I don't feel respected. I don't feel like I'm growing from this, but I'm going to stay because I don't want to upset something. It's like, how ridiculous. And like, I'm, and I've been there. I'm not saying it's ridiculous for others. I'm saying it's ridiculous for me when I'm in that situation. It can be heartbreaking to let go of something that you become attached to, even if the thing that you're attached to is incredibly harmful. I Do you know the poet Andrea Gibson? Mm -mm. She's incredible. She has this quote that says that I have literally written in huge letters mm -hmm. on my houses. Um, you have to let your heart break so your soul doesn't. And I was like... But that's that's well, and that's well what this said, is, Andrew right? Gibson. Yeah, wow. Andrew Gibson. But it's it's a beautiful <laughs> sentiment because I think that we're constantly trying to avoid heartbreak when heartbreak could be the thing that actually saves your soul and gives you life. Because it's heartbreaking to let go of things, even if even if you know that you have to or you should. Mm -hmm. But attachment is a strong, strong thing. And also, yeah. I think hope is a strong thing and sunk cost fallacy. And, like, there's so many things totally. that make you want to hold on to people, places, situations, ideology that it's very obvious are hurting you and so, maybe holding you back. So there's – there's you threw a concept in there that – you taught me about that I love, and I think I might have pretended to have already known about it, but I actually don't know <laughs> if I did. Um, is and are you, you you must know about this as well. Probably everyone in the world does, except for me. But the the sunk cost fallacy. No, I don't. I sunk cost say fallacy attachment. is the greatest concept. And Lindsay and our friend Jonathan, who's our podcast editor, they sort of are the ones who mentioned this idea of sunk cost fallacy, and it's basically the idea. That if you've like, if suppose you invest $10,000 in a business and the business starts to fail, just because you've invested $10,000 doesn't mean you should sink more money into it. Like if you've been in a bad relationship for a year, a lot of people, myself included, would be like, oh, I've been in it for a year. I should stick with it. It's like that's the sunk cost fallacy. The idea that because you've invested in something, you should continue to invest in it. Mm. And the truth is like sometimes relationships, business investments, what have you, cutting your losses is actually the smartest thing to do. Which is hard to do because you're not going to invest in something initially if you don't really believe that it's going to have an ideal outcome. And I think that belief, you start to convince yourself more and more as time goes on, even if you're bleeding money or bleeding time or bleeding your own kind of energy into it, 
you still hold on to that hope and it's very hard to cut your losses. So, so I will say, Lindsay, thank you for introducing me to the concept of sunk cost fallacy. You're very welcome. I'm a little embarrassed to admit that I didn't know what it was before you told me about it. And I probably pretended I did because I didn't want to seem like a dimwit. <laughs> um, but also to, to, to people listening, feel free to use the term sunk cost fallacy in conversation and you'll sound real fancy. <laughs> totally. It's a great one to have great in concept, your back pocket. And boy, is it just like, just throw it out there and you're yeah. like, wow, I'm like a marketing genius. I can already see. I'm <laughs> yeah. like basically a finance guy now that I have yeah. that in my back pocket. <laughs> I can see it working in a lot of situations because it's sort of the same thing as like, if you can, if your self-worth is in a shaky place, it's very challenging i'll speak for myself <laughs> to not people please and mm -hmm. and say no when you know it's going to be a, a tough conversation or it's just easier to do the thing because you are feeling anxious or you're feeling like you don't want to disappoint anyone because you're already like i can't even handle another thing right now so it's just easier to do it so there is a challenge to that and i think that's why people myself <laughs> um you know put more money into their bad investment. However, if you can build yourself up, I think it's easier to pull the money out and run. Mm -hmm. And then that saves you time. It's like the, the I don't know who said this, but there's some quote about fail fast, like instead of trying, which is essentially the same thing of like the sooner you can realize something's not working and let it go, the quicker and... um Historically, I've been very bad at that. Like, I'm, you know, this give it a good college try. You know, and, I'm also and, oh, go oh, ahead. one thing I was going to say that, that, that when you were talking, I really thought of is like this idea of self-worth is so much self-help and therapy is about developing self-worth. Yeah. But I, I hate to say this. I don't know too many sane people who really have great self-worth. I think people have self-awareness. Um, and some recognition that like certain things are harming them and the ability to act. I, basically, what I find for myself is almost like the ability to act as if you have self-worth. Mm. Like I know how to, I know sort of how to protect myself, but it might not be the product of self-worth. It's just the recognition that like, oh, certain actions are harmful and I should probably stay away from them. But like the reason I mention that is I don't know about you guys, but I feel like a lot of there's this pinnacle that we're all aspiring towards of self-worth or self-love. I don't know too many people who get there. Totally. And I think that it might be like maybe self-like yeah. and self-respect are easier to achieve than this idea of like self-love or self-worth. When you said that, it just struck me like, I don't know if I'll ever get to self-worth or self-love, but I can get to self-like, self-appreciation and self-respect. Yeah, the thing that you said that really landed with me is acting as if you have self-worth because I've just re recently been thinking a lot about that too because, I don't know, I'll just overhear conversations with, with people talking about doing different, you know, workshops and therapy. Like you said, it's just kind of in the ether right mm -hmm. now. And I've always been like, I tried the repro. I've done, I've, I've done it all. I've interviewed them, you know, like I've tried and I'm sure there's much I haven't, but I've, I have tried a bunch and same. I'm just kind of like, I don't know if I'm ever going to get there. But the thing that I can do is 
hopefully I'm not that self-aware, but because I think I believe we become more self-aware as we age. So hopefully we'll be the most self-aware mm-hmm. like right before I die, you know, <laughs> Um but the acting as if, like, I kind of do this thing where I don't always do it. In fact, I often don't. But I know, like, I'll or I'll often look at something that my friend did. Like, my friend Dexter. Um, the hey, serial killer from Miami? Yes, <laughs> yeah. him, actually. Um, <laughs> but he'll say something or be telling me about a date he went on or whatever it is or how he's going to handle a situation. And I've, I've been sort of in my head thinking like, oh, that is the self, high self-worth thing to do. And so I've clocked that. Mm-hmm. And then in myself, I have, you know, I haven't really like said it in the language of like, what would Dexter do? But it's sort of like, oh, I know the high self-worth thing to do is to not go to that thing or text that yeah. person back or whatever it is. And I've actively done the opposite and then been, you know, seen the consequences. Or sometimes I have had real magnetism when I have act as it, acted as if. That's the only thing important is not necessarily to have the high self-worth. It's just to pretend you do. <laughs> and, and, to, and to use your intelligence and to use your awareness and your experience to behave in a self-protective way, which doesn't necessarily have to be this pie-in-the-sky goal of self-love or self-worth. It can just be like, oh, I know that if I do that thing, it will harm me, so I'll probably try and avoid it. But also, Lindsay, I feel about I, you were going to say something, and I as the, as the cisgendered representative <laughs> of Caucasian patriarchy, I stomped all over what you were going to say, so I apologize I'm on sure behalf it was of really... me and my gender and, and <laughs> heritage. <laughs> um, I don't remember what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> but I do know this. I, for a long time, when I was feeling low or feeling unworthy, um, would then start to go into a cycle of feeling like shit because I couldn't start to have totally. feelings of worth. Yeah. And I think that part of the journey for me in trying to build that muscle is to acknowledge that the society that we live in actively benefits on us dealing with unworthiness of it i mean it sells products it gets you to watch things it gets you to buy things it gets you to suffer in jobs where you are treated terribly it gets you to stay in relationships with people that don't respect you because there's business Mm -hmm. That's that's commerce, baby. That's capitalism. Totally. It, the system benefits when you feel when people feel like shit about themselves, and when they want to feel better but don't know how. And and I will say you 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 said something that really resonated with me, which is so we all have, we've all done the seminars, we've all been to therapy, we've all you know mm-hmm. like read the tea bags um, <laughs> that talk about self love, that talk about self worth, that talk. It's so vague. I don't know about you guys, the people listening, but Lindsay, what you said was I was, I've beaten myself up like, oh, what's wrong with me that I don't have adequate self-love or Mm self-worth? And like, what an insidious thing. It's like, okay, well, I don't have the self-love I think I should have, so now I'm going to feel worse. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to taking a step back and being like, you know what, objectively, all three of us, and I assume a lot of people listening, we actually are quite good at being our own advocates. Mm-hmm. You know, we're healthy. I assume we exercise. We probably floss occasionally. We eat <laughs> relatively well. Like, we're actually 
good. We're surprised. If you look at it objectively, we're surprisingly good at self-care. Like none of us are behind a dumpster at Arby's. Could be worse. <laughs> shooting fentanyl into our face, you know, like which. God but bless. even if you are, there's room you yeah. Because you might get even if you are behind a dumpster shooting fentanyl into your face, should you survive the fentanyl? You might say to yourself, "Well, this is where I am, and I can't get any better." But that is you. St you could start to be like punishing yourself for shooting fentanyl into your yeah. face. But if you can say, "I actually, this is what I've done. I can have compassion for myself and where I've landed up behind this beautiful dumpster," um, you can. When you have compassion, say, it's okay that I got here and I can choose to do something different maybe next. Like, that's how you get out of dumpster mm -hmm. land. Um, as a complete weird tangent, you just reminded me that <laughs> it's time for me to rewatch the movie Mulholland Drive. Every time I've tried to watch it, I fall asleep and I never get to the lesbian part. Okay. Which makes me so sad. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but I do have David another David Lynch thing to ask you in my notes, which also oh. a tangent, have not looked at one time. So, so Mulholland Drive, <laughs> I mean, I love everything he's ever done, but Mulholland Drive is very, because it's it's very surreal. It was edited, it's, it's kind of nonlinear, but there is a dumpster scene that is really upsetting. Not not upsetting gross, upsetting scary. Like it's it's a weird fascinating behind a dumpster scene not it's not mm. dirty it's not sexual it's not violent it's just scary it's super scary like it's huh. well if i haven't yeah. watched and, it before now i gotta I know, check same. out the scary and, dumpster I mean, scene so so lindsay here's i'm the, refraining here's, from not youtubing it as we see yeah. <laughs> so what a selling point it's like arguably one of the most erotic sex scenes I've ever seen between Naomi Watts and the other woman who's the other lead. Um, but also this very scary dumpster scene. We come, are in. Yeah, come for the scissoring and stay for the scary dumpster. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's one of the most perfect That's Los Angeles quote. movies. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it all takes place in our neighborhood. Wow. It's all like so right fun. around. It, it's Hollywood at its weirdest. Um, movie night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, there was something that you were saying that I wanted to... Um... By the way, sorry for my... You, you no, guys no, no. Having, I mean, that was very a... Vulnerable, intimate, meaningful conversation about self-love and self-care. And I had to go on some weird tangent about a David Lynch dumpster scene. Okay. So no, that was a, that was a, it was meaningful. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll see myself out. No, I, en dumpster. I enjoyed that. Yeah. And I, re I remember it came back to me, but I think... Somebody, I don't know, in some conversation I've had recently recorded or not, we were making the... They're going to listen to this and be so pissed. <laughs> <laughs> you don't... That's how much you value. Yeah. And you know what I'll say to that? I'll be like, that I have high self-worth, so I'm I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> what are we going to do? Um, I mean, I don't know that. You know what I mean. But <laughs> I guess she was saying about I just remembered who it was during that That's the, it's a it was an episode of this but she was making the distinction between self-confidence and self-worth or self-esteem and self-confidence like all these terms and mm -hmm. some of it is just semantics but I think and I'm curious what this looks like for each of you and and this will be the first time I I'm looking at my notes about the episode with talking about anxiety something that i i clocked in that of like i think there is something 
to mental health playing a role in this, whether it's self-worth and or self-confidence or whatever it is, because what I'll pose as a question to each of you is, you know, twofold, right? Like when, what drives self-confidence or self-esteem? And to me, like as an example, I think that I feel confident when I make myself proud, you know, like when mm -hmm. I do just a couple of things that like, oh, I did my exercise routine I usually do. And I did that hike and I sent that email that I procrastinated and I went to the thing like that gives me a little bit by the end of the day of doing and they kind of compound like you get a little bit of momentum mm -hmm. and to your previous point you know I think when we don't do those it spirals down the other way where it's easy to be like oh well you're you know you didn't do that you're not going to do this and it goes so then the other part is like mental health, I think, does come into it because if you're feeling really anxious or really depressed, it's hard to do those things that make you feel better. And part of the first part, the first step is awareness. But let's just say we've got that, then you know what it is that you're doing. But then I think our mental health and the day and how we slept and what's going on in the world, like that does affect us since we don't live in a vacuum. So, you know, what are the things that each of you do or does that even land with you about how that, how you, how do you feel good about yourself? Or when do you, when have you felt the most confident? And then when you don't, you know, what is it that helps get you to baseline or get you to feeling, you know, even better than that, feeling well? Oh, well, I'll go first. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, this is something that I definitely still, I struggle with. I know when I feel good is when I get a baller night of sleep and I wake up and I take bagel for a long walk and I listen to my podcast. I know what's going on in the world. I go home and I do a Peloton. I love a good Peloton. I do, I do yoga. I read and all of these things that kind of like start this base work, this base work sure. groundwork for f for my day it's like the roots of my day um and if i miss one of those things then shit gets weird real <laughs> fast um and i often miss one of those things and i it's it's hard to get back on track because you know sometimes like the day will come at you fast before you have time to really, which is amazing because I love when a day comes at me fast because that means there's things to do that I know will make me feel good and like I'm moving things forward in my own life. Um, but yeah, that that starting a day with a morning routine gives me, it A, makes me feel like I accomplished something for myself, which is not something I grew up aware I could do. <laughs> like, it's been incredibly revolutionary to me in my life to say, if I can take these steps to do nice things for myself and start my day that way, I will be, I will, I will fill my own cup in the most necessary way. Didn't know that was an option for so much of my life. And now that I do, it's like this it's this magical thing. Like at night I'll be like, oh my God, I'm so excited to go to sleep because I know I'm going to wake up and get to do this thing for myself in the morning where I make my matcha, I play a wordle, I talk to bagel and I had do my whole thing. And it just, it's become very like a kind of uh, self romance thing of my like daily date with me. So that is something that really helps me. If things go wrong, I'm still working on how to get the train back on the tracks, but if it goes right, things are real good. <laughs> well, that's 
Yeah, that's the, the, the for me, the, the hardest question is when the train goes off the mm -hmm. tracks, what has pushed it off the tracks? And what can I do to sort of, first and foremost, not share my train off the tracks with other people? And then how can I sort of try and get it back on the tracks? And that's because I agree with you, Lindsay, like having the sort of like the stuff that fills my cup, like almost identical to what you're describing, like wake up in the morning, have a smoothie. I would say read the news, except the news makes my brain hurt. Um, so it's all the, the healthy, normal daily stuff. But then if I go off the tracks, as it were, what I'm so grateful for is having a toolbox or some skills that will enable me to help get back on track. First and foremost is going out into nature. Like if I'm, if my brain is just out of sorts, go for a hike in Griffith Park, look at trees, look at spiders, look at squirrels, look at nature, something about that. And I'm not alone in that. Like, like article after article is talking about the healing effect of forest bathing or walking or being in nature. Um, that is my sort of almost like lazy way to get myself back on track. But the other is cognitive skills. Like if I'm really spiraling, like if it's, if I'm anxious, if I'm depressed, if I'm angry is, you know, cause I've done enough therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy and meditation and 12 step programs that I have some insight skills that I can, if I'm lucky, use to sort of address whatever is making me crazy or whatever's making me anxious or whatever's making me depressed and try and deconstruct it in a way that can be really helpful. Yeah, I I picked up on walking in one of your podcasts when you were talking about panic attacks. And I, I co-host this other show about anxiety called Spiraling, actually. And we often talk about like what someone, when they are having a physical anxiety panic attack, Serena, who I do that show with, she's like, I don't want to be touched. I don't want to talk to anyone. I need to lay down on the floor in the dark room. Like she knows her patterning well enough. This has been happening for over a decade for her where that would not work for me at all. And, and you mentioned that walking was the only thing that really got you out of that. And, and that ambient music helped after that. But, um, I think the physicality of, I'd love if you could talk about that a little bit, because for me, like when I'm spiraling, like nothing really gets me out of it, then either getting out of myself of like asking how someone else is doing and, and being helpful or move, like walking, honestly. Yeah. Walking. Um, I mean, walking is perfect because like all your senses are engaged, especially in nature. Like, you know, you're, you're breathing better. You, you know, you can't, you can't breathe wrong when you're hiking. Like you just can't, like your body won't let you have anxious hyper breath if you're, if you're hiking up a mountain or hiking through nature. Uh, I will say one thing, if I was on your spiraling podcast, what I would say is the, the cognitive tools that I've learned, some of which can be magical, like for deconstructing anxiety, deconstructing resentment, uh, things I've learned from CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy or 12-step programs 
have saved my life so many times. Like the three o'clock in the morning panic and having the, the presence of mind to say, okay, what's in my toolbox? What can I use at this moment that will stop my brain from melting out of my ears? Uh, because left to my own devices, my brain will melt out of my ears, especially three o'clock in the morning. Can you share one of those? Like what comes to mind? One, one of the easiest, because the question is like, you can have the best practice in the world, but if it's unattainable when you're panicking, what good is it? Yeah. And no matter what, things that happen. And so one of the, the ones that I try to remember that I try to sort of inhabit is I guess it would be called simple mindfulness is simply where am I? What's going on? What what can I see? Like use the senses. What can I see? What can I smell? What does my body feel like? What can I hear? Uh, what can I even, you know, what am I tasting right now? And there's something about that that's so grounding. You know, if, if I'm lying in bed panicking, my brain is a million miles away obsessed with whatever I'm panicking about. And I have to remember, okay, you're in a safe, comfortable bed. You have a refrigerator full of food. You're well fed. You are safe and warm. And that just engages my parasympathetic nervous system. Um, and in some of the others, there's one and we were talking about this the other day with um, uh, Mr. Gervais. Mike Gervais. Michael Gervais, uh, who's a therapist, is this trick that I learned from cognitive behavioral therapy. So if you're, and it's easy to remember because it's A, B, C, D, E. So A is the activating event, like what has triggered the panic. B is what is the belief that you're bringing to the panic? Um, like, for example, when I first, I used to own a restaurant in Los Angeles. When we first opened, it was failing, mm. failing dramatically. And when, you, when a restaurant's failing, it's failing publicly. You have 30 employees who hate your guts mm. and you're losing $10,000 a week. It's terrifying. It's, and it's public. Like, you're all of a sudden, like the LA Times gives you a scathing review and you're like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do? So the activating event was my restaurant is failing. Mm -hmm. Luckily, Eventually it did well, but yeah, I loved it. And then B, the belief was, oh no, if it fails, my life is over. C is the challenge to the belief. Like, okay, let me challenge. Guess what? If it fails, my life is not over. It's going to continue. And then D and E, this is the really magical part. You dispute the belief with evidence. So instead of saying, Oh, if it fails, I'll be okay. You're like, well, when in my past has it seemed like something similar happened? Like, oh, well, I had a restaurant in New York that was failing for a while. I barely even remember it. Like, or, you know, in high school, when I got a failing grade on a test and I thought my life was over, I never, I haven't thought of it in decades. So it's that activating event, the belief around the event. C is the challenge to the event, and then you dispute the belief with evidence. And by that point, like my anxiety has been reduced by 80%. Mm. Yeah, that's a very useful. It's a great skill. And because it's skill. A, B, C, D, E, it's hard to not remember it. Yeah. Sorry, it helps for, sorry for rambling on so no, much. No, it's but. great. It's, uh, that's something that has definitely helped me because I think, I mean, it's so easy to to let the thought take you over, to drown in the scary thought 
and let it convince you that it's going to end your life on some level. I mean, even if you're not metabolizing that the thought is making you believe you're going to die. Once I boil it down all the way, I figured out some way that the thing I'm freaking out about is going to lead to my ultimate death and working your way out of it and being like, wait, wait, no, no. This has happened before. There's an underlying belief here that is has no evidence to prove it. And, you know, there's it, it has it's been a helpful tool to me. Yeah. And I think the the mindset piece of all of this is is really important of it's do you do you know Aaliyah Crum? Mm-mm. Have you heard about this person? Mm-mm. I think you both would be really fascinated by it. But her work is around the placebo effect, which is you know, we don't talk about enough, really, I think, because it's fascinating to think about how big of a deal that is, that our mm-hmm. minds are that powerful or the nocebo effect of, you know, you tell someone, you know, the opposite of it, basically. And I think these sorts of beliefs that are sticky or whatever it is can really, you know, shift just by telling yourself a different story. Yeah, that's a... That's a wonderful point that that question and, and really what you're talking about, not to be all neurosciencey, is engaging the prefrontal cortex, you know, engaging the executive center of the brain, which is really how you dismantle anxiety. But I, I try to remind myself that simple question, like if I'm angry or if I'm anxious or I'm depressed, just a simple question like, is there another way of looking at it? Mm-hmm. And it, it can that perspective shift can be like tectonic. I mean, I had a I learned that in therapy about twenty years ago. I had okay, this is a little embarrassing, but also not. So when I had some success as a musician, I bought my dream apartment and it was ridiculous. It was a five-level penthouse on Central Park West in a building where Bono lived. And Alec Baldwin lived there. And so all these, Ron Howard, the director, lived there. Was Is this s- when you lived by David Bowie? No, that was downtown. That was way more fun. So I saved up my money and I bought this five-level apartment that was the most, spec. I wish I still had it, but it was the most spectacular apartment I'd ever seen. You have a track record with spectacular places because I heard about your castle. Well, like well. I grew up poor white trash, so I've always been a little Gatsby-esque regarding some real estate. So I spent years renovating this apartment and I moved in and I was convinced like, oh no, I'm going to be the happiest person on the planet because I live in this magical sky castle penthouse overlooking all of New York City. I moved in and I was depressed and I was anxious. And I was like, oh no, what's wrong with me? I'm such an idiot. I can't be happy here. I'm never going to be happy. All this masochistic thinking. And I remember leaving my apartment, going to walking across the park, going to therapy, so sad, so anxious, so depressed, so mad at myself. Like, what what have I done wrong that I can't be happy? And I got to my therapy appointment and my therapist asked the simplest question. She said, well, is there another way to look at it? And in that instant, I was like, oh, (laughs) yes, the other way to look at it is 
how interesting. I've had a career as a musician where I was able to buy this crazy five-level penthouse, and I had such a fun time renovating it. And even if I sell it, before I sell it, my friends can stay there. My family can stay there. We can have parties there. I can take pictures there. And then isn't it amazing that this has been a part of my life? And all of a sudden, just that cognitive shift from that simple question, and I felt a thousand times better. Yeah, it's really So powerful. you're right, the brain, like, you, if with a little bit of nudging and training, our brains can almost do anything. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's it's storytelling, which I think circles back to why I think the three of us, at least, this medium is kind of good for that because, and, and Lindsay, you're so good at this, you, you're able to sort of, you know, put pennies in the jukebox of Moby. You obviously have a lot of stories good stories that are wild and fascinating and connecting the dots back. I just like and... the expression pennies in the jukebox. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm thinking like, is it 1906? I, know. Like... I don't think that's my, I don't, okay. that definitely didn't come from me, but it <laughs> mm -hmm. is, it does work. Um, but you've asked him about a lot of great stories. And I think one of those, you know, Moby was another one of those transitional um periods and you talk about I think it's it might be the first episode but you talk about when you were I think in your early 30s you were at a rock bottom and about to put out what you thought would be your last album can you talk about what happened with that and was there a mindset shift involved there oh yeah this was it, it basically proved to me that I I can't judge or predict anything. So the year was 1998, which to me sounds like just a couple of years ago, but I guess it was a very long time ago. <laughs> and I had lost my record deal. My mom was dying of cancer. I was going broke. I was battling crippling panic attacks, like serious, serious, desperately trying medication, trying anything to battle my panic attacks. I was drinking constantly. I was it was it was a very dark time. And I was working on music. My album that had come out in 1996 was called Animal Rights, and it was a complete abject failure. And I was working on music, and I just thought, okay, I have a friend who has a record company. They'll let me release it. This will be my last record. It'll get terrible reviews. It'll sell nothing. I'll tour for a couple of weeks, and then I'll probably go back to school and try and get a PhD so I can teach philosophy. And I'll, have to, I'll sell my apartment. And then my mom died. It was so very, very dark time. And then the album came out and it, it, rather than sell nothing, it sold 12 million copies and became this ridiculously successful record, which was great. But that actually precipitated my bottoming out as like a crazy narcissistic addict. Like, because all of a sudden you sell 12 million copies, like there's money, there's fame, there's invitations, there's degeneracy. And I became awful, like an, an entitled, terrible narcissist and drinking, doing tons of drugs. So what a weird paradox. Like I got exactly what I wanted times a million and it ended up almost killing me. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's kind of the, becomes the, then the stories like this, I think for us to hear are... It, you know, Jim Carrey has that famous line, like, I wish everyone would get rich and famous so they realize it's not the thing. Yeah. And you actually experience that exact thing. Well, that's, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. that's 
one of the things I'm also profoundly grateful for is we live in a culture that glorifies fame, that glorifies wealth, that glorifies rock star status. And I've experienced all of it. And there's nothing wrong with it, but it certainly wasn't great. Like it, and I'm glad. So I'm, but you can't tell someone that. You know, you can't, you have to, at least for me, I had to live that to, to realize, oh, happiness, well-being, quality of life doesn't come from fame and wealth and standing on stage in front of 100,000 people. Um, if it did, Kurt Cobain and Amy Winehouse would still be alive. Mm -hmm. Avicii would still be alive. Chris Cornell would still be alive, on and on and on. Like, the evidence is there, but I had to experience it firsthand. Yeah, and hopefully... You know, the more we talk about it and, you know, that's always like wealth to a certain extent. Like, what do they say? Oh, you know, once you have your basic needs, there's something with struggle that also isn't great. But there's also something with once you have baseline. But I think what what do each of you think about attachment? Because in that story you told about being in a tough spot, putting out this record, you were really the way you describe it, like, all right, well, I'm going to do this the way I want to do it because stakes are low and mm -hmm. I don't have very far, far to fall because I'm pretty low already. Here we go. And then, you know, I think that if we can harness the power of non-attachment, it has that sort of magnetism quality that it sounds like happened here, but it's very hard to do the mental gymnastics to get yourself there when you really want something. I yeah. found I like, it's no sure way to not get it, but if you're not attached, it can come. So how do each of you wrestle with that? Yeah, it's hard to fake non-attachment. Yeah. You can't really, you can't pretend non-attachment. Lindsay, what do you think? Well, I not, I, I, I've been doing a, a yoga teacher training. Oh, cool. Like, you know, online over time, whenever I have time to do it, which isn't very often. But I've been very much steeped in the ideology and the theory of like yogic mentality. And one of the, I mean, first of all is nonviolence. That's the very first thing that they talk about. But then they go into practicing non-attachment and non-aversion and finding motivation from in that middle ground. And it's not an easy thing to do because if you think non-attachment, you think, whatever, I'll just reject everything. But then that's aversion. And you also, that also is unhealthy. So how can you find this middle ground? It's not easy. And then there's also, I mean, there's like the yogic ideology of non-attachment, non-aversion. But then there's like the different forms of attachment, kind of like the attachment theory, like that book, Attached, which it's a canon for the ladies, <laughs> um, <laughs> which, and, but also, you know, all of that, all about attachment theory, Moby. Yeah, there's a wonderful book that I recommend as well. It's got a terrible title. It's called A General Theory of Love. I'm also reading that right now because you told me to. It's so good. It's all about attachment theory. Mm, I've never heard of it. I, so anyway, but please go on. So, you know, I, I am a Libra. Oh, of course so, I. <laughs> and I don't know if that has anything to do with it. It could also come with the coolest people are with Libra. childhood trauma or you know anemia. I don't know why I'm this way, but of whatever situation I'm in, the other person often dictates my attachment style. 
Mm. of if someone is very avoidant, I become anxious. If someone is anxious, I become avoidant. That's interesting. Historically. And um, so I don't know what that has to do with it. It probably just comes from, you know, people pleasing and, you know, growing up, moving all around and not knowing where or when I was. Um, But as far as attachment, I would say I'm still on the journey of finding that space between not feeling so attached to something that I feel like I will do things to keep it that are unhealthy, but also not feeling so averse to something that I will do things to keep it away. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm still managing that middle ground. Again, going back to evidence, which, you know, is my, I just have to always remind myself, like, oh, am I willing to look at the evidence? And it's a, a big part of sobriety is recognizing, like, oh, the stuff that I wanted was usually things I was most attached to. I'm not talking about, like, emotional attachment from childhood, talking about actual like material attachment or career attachment. Uh, I, it was all coming from fear. It was coming from a place of fear and inadequacy and avoid and trying to protect myself from the human condition. And the human condition by definition is messy. You know, we age, we get sick, we make mistakes, we lose the people we care about, like our bodies start to fail us. Like that's the human condition. Nothing protects against it. Yeah, as we've seen. And my best thinking was, oh, if I can just have the right drugs, the right alcohol, the right adulation, the be on the receiving end of so much attention and have fame and wealth, I'll be the happiest person in the world. But I wasn't. And recognizing, okay, what I wanted and what I was given didn't work. So clearly my thinking is coming from a weird place. And attachment i had this wonderful epiphany really like that 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 i felt like it was going to like the spiritual chiropractor like i felt like realigned by this epiphany i was hiking going back to our recurring thing of the benefits of walking and hiking and i had put out a record a couple weeks before and it didn't do very well this was probably like 10 years ago 12 years ago it didn't do badly but it did it certainly it wasn't lighting the charts on fire. It wasn't, you know, it's just, it seemed like it was doing okay. And around that time, some old friends of mine had released a record that was doing really well. Mm. And I was jealous and I was resentful. But then I thought to myself, okay, if my record was doing a thousand times better at this minute, how would this hike be better? How would the trees I'm looking at be better? How would the wind be better? How would, and I'm like, oh, why do I want that validation? It doesn't matter. Like in that moment, there was nothing about it that mattered. And it was such a nice realization. The things that matter for the most part are not contingent upon material accomplishment or fame. Like it's friendships, it's health, Mm. it's spirituality, it's sleeping well. No one, for the most part, like fame and those things take away from those good things, which is, again, an interesting paradox. I can't even believe that I'm getting to interrupt this episode to tell you about the narrative method who happens to be sponsoring this episode, which is truly beyond me because it is 
the most incredible fit that there possibly could be. And I am so grateful that I get to work with such an incredible organization. And this is how it happened. Micah, my very close friend, my neighbor. And the other day we went and got a drink and caught up and he was telling me all about his new job. And he runs an amazing nonprofit addressing the epidemic of loneliness. You heard about it. Loneliness. My, my whole goal of of let it out really is to keep you company and, and to help hopefully make make people feel a little bit less alone. And the nonprofit is called the narrative method. And I, of course, feel lonely sometimes, often, dare I say. And this is an organization that helps. I love their free online salons. There's creative writing, conversation, and best of all, connection with other human beings. And those things, that triple threat, if you will, is kind of what keeps me going. <laughs> writing, I wrote a whole book about journaling, writing for emotional wellness, creative writing, conversation. I you know, recorded hours and hours of my voice and connection with friends and other people is really everything that I do to try to feel better. And the narrative method does all of those things and more. The founder of the narrative method is my new best friend. Her name is Sherry and she is an incredible award-winning psychotherapist. And she has created this proven science-backed methodology rooted in the narrative methods 12 core concepts in 2024 they're going to be celebrating 10 years of outreach and impact and over 1500 plus workshops have been hosted to date 30,000 plus participants i believe in this so much there's a rare opportunity for intergenerational connections within this group and it's really profound there are five free online salons every single week including four writing salons and one conversation salon. You don't need to be a writer to attend. You just need to set aside any self-judgment and come with an open mind. Each salon is guided by the founder, Sherry, or another member of the team, another facilitator, and they're all small groups and they create these mosaics and they're, they're really, really beautiful. Free writing, connecting deeply, community. In California, in person and across the country, they are wonderful. I would love for you to check it out. You're going to hear more about the narrative method in the next coming weeks, and you're going to hear more about the founder and about my friend Micah. So visit the calendar page of thenarrativemethod.org to sign up for a free writing salon. That's thenarrativemethod.org. Sign up for a free writing or conversation salon at The Narrative Method. And listen, you do not need to be a writer. You do not have to be really you know, into conversation. Just come and unwind and explore your creativity. They're all completely free open to everyone 18 or older join this growing community from the comfort of your own home okay go to the calendar page the narrative to sign up for your free writing salon i'll see you there more about the narrative method soon okay back to my conversation with moby 
told me once on on this show, Carolyn Palmer said that people think they want fame, but they actually want access. Like access is the one thing that that we'll use the word fame. But for instance, I wouldn't be here talking to either of you if I didn't, if your publicist hadn't emailed me and because of this thing that I do, you know what I mean? There is something of by me having this podcast, I have some access and it's not fame, it's a different thing. But she was saying in her work, by doing something that had some success, I guess I'll use the word, There's, it's not really necessarily that either. It allow, It opens doors and it allows you to make connections and meet people. And I think there is something like saying the same thing with, with money, right? Where it's, yeah, money doesn't buy happiness. We have enough examples to see that. But struggling with money also doesn't, isn't good. So it's oh, like, yeah. there is a baseline, I think, for both, you know, having some notoriety to be able to, not notoriety, but having some ability to open doors or whatever there's it's an i don't know it's an interesting conversation yeah. i mean i will say i'm hyper aware a lot of what i'm saying could be dis dismissed as a perspective of privilege you know someone could be like oh you've had your fame like you've made some money of course you have this perspective i will say and hopefully i don't sound defensive but like i grew up on food stamps and welfare I grew up very poor and i used to live in an abandoned factory and i made two thousand dollars a year so I've occupied a lot of different places on the socioeconomic strata. And what I will say is you're absolutely right that money, fame, these things are, they're fine if they enable you to do things that are meaningful. If they enable you to pay the rent and be warm in the wintertime and buy blueberries when you want blueberries, then that's great. It doesn't do anything more than that. Mm -hmm. You can't. And I think that's part of the problem is like a hammer is wonderful if you need something to push a nail into it. I don't know much about building. So if you mm -hmm. like a hammer is great for being a hammer, it's not going to be cuddly and it's not going to change your life and take you on vacation. Like having some money is fine. It's not going to fix the human condition. Like it doesn't do anything more than what it is. And I think so much unhappiness comes from people thinking, oh, money or fame or these things or a relationship will fix my experience of the human condition. And I will say a lot of different spiritual teaching basically says, guess what? The human condition is messy. It's a struggle. And the only way in is through or whatever that expression is, like you have to accept the mess, accept the struggle and have a sense of compassion for yourself and everyone who's going through it mm -hmm. because nothing fixes it. You yeah. just ask Kanye, ask, ask Putin, ask Donald Trump. I mean, these people are like the most successful, wealthy people in human history, and they're miserable because they expected accomplishment and fame and money to fix their lives and nothing will. Yeah. What's your perspective on this? Having, you know, one of your close friends has experienced, and maybe you have to, you know, this full spectrum. And in my case, I, I probably will never experience the, you know, the albums and <laughs> definitely not that I'm not going to be suddenly become a pop star, but a lot of people haven't experienced that. But what has your experience been with what he's talking about of 
thinking something will be the thing and then learning that it's not that thing and constantly like a moving target? I think, you know, I am guilty myself of magical thinking in so many ways, thinking that the right job, the right relationship, the right outfit at the right time is going to make me feel better or make my life better. And there is a degree where money does give comfort. Mm-hmm. Having, being able to know how you're going to pay for your life, how you're going to get your taxes done and paid for, how you're going to get your rent and your health that is real. And if you don't have one of those things, comfort goes out the window and that is hard. Yeah. But like Moby's saying, perspective is the most important thing. I believe that no matter what you have, whether you have too little or you have too much, perspective and compassion and morals matter more than anything because even if you can't pay your rent that month and you have to figure some shit out keeping your head on straight and having a healthy perspective and respect for yourself and the world around you and not you know losing your head is how you figure out how you're going to pay the rent But it's also if you're suddenly a billionaire and you lose perspective, then you end up with these companies. Yeah, yes, exactly. (laughs) Or you start, you become this kind of psychopath who's so easily offended and uses their power for destruction. And, you know, so no matter what you have or how much or how little perspective is everything. Yeah. Yeah. I went to this party right before I got sober and it was so special because I was towards the end of my drinking in New York. I was really obsessed with like social climbing. I wanted to be accepted by high society. I wanted to get married to an heiress. I wanted to, you know, live in a castle and be fancy and, you know, go to St. Bart's for New Year's. Like I was, I was shallow and scared. And I went to this birthday for a real estate developer in New York named Lafrac. And I think it was his 60th birthday, but everyone was there. Trump, this was when Trump was just like a creepy reality TV show host. And Michael Bloomberg was there and all the billionaires, the New York, Steve Schwartzman, all the New York billionaires were there. And Earth, Wind and Fire were performing at this guy's birthday party. (laughs) And they were performing and they played, did they do Celebrate? I think, I think so. Okay, so they were. Pl- I think they were playing. They were playing one of their celebrate, like one of their big hits, and the billionaires were dancing with their trophy wives joylessly. Trump was sitting at his table, like on his BlackBerry, <laughs> angry, scowling. And I looked around, and I was like, and the band were unhappy, and the billionaires were unhappy, and the trophy wives were. Un- everyone was unhappy. You cool know? in the gang. Cool in the gang. So this was Earthman and Fire, not Cool in the Gang. <laughs> so, but Earthman and Fire were playing one of their hits. Sorry, I don't remember which one. And there was this September. Joy- there's yeah. something about that. Yeah. Let's remember say. Yeah. Better return. <laughs> but so the billionaires were unhappy. The trophy wives were unhappy. The band was unhappy. Everyone was happy. Do you know who was having a fantastic time? The kitchen staff. I looked over and there was a door leading to the kitchen and the kitchen staff and the catering people were dancing and they were the 
only people smiling. There were the only happy people there. And I was like, so all these billionaires have spent decades getting to the pinnacle of wealth and success, and they're miserable. And it was such a realization. I was like, oh, it's, yeah, we keep going back to this very important point, which is you do need money to eat. You do need money to buy socks. You need money to do certain things and you can't pretend otherwise, but it doesn't do anything more than that, mm -hmm. you know? And it's, I'm just, I'm really grateful that I've had these experiences firsthand because other people can learn it without having to, like in my case, it's been shoved in my face. Other people can learn it, I think, a little more easily. Yeah. I mean, I, one thing I had written down in my notes to, to talk to you about is memory and storytelling and nostalgia because listening through your podcast and now hearing some of these stories live, I think clearly, you know, perspective is a thread that's run through today and can come from this. But I'm curious what both of you think, and, and maybe this is a question more for you, Lindsay, because you don't know otherwise of learning that lesson without having experienced it, where like we haven't experienced that. So can someone learn that through hearing the stories of it. I think storytelling can be useful to, again, to a point because unlike self-help, I would rather learn from someone's story, but can that lesson be learned without having experienced it? I don't know. Oh, and make does you this feel... cautionary tale make me feel like I don't need that? I, you know, I still have part of me that believes that if I suddenly had a billion gajillion dollars that I never had to worry about how I was going to pay my bills or, or, you know, like that there, there is part of my brain that does say, if all the struggles and worries I've had up to now suddenly go away, then I'll be fine. Or, you know, if I find some great magical success, then I will get so much of the love community and freedom that I have always and most people always hope for. But because of Moby's experience and so many other people that I know that have experienced extreme success and occasionally extreme wealth, the brain always finds something to be upset about. <laughs> Even if you have everything, you will find something that makes you feel just as shitty as it did when you couldn't pay your rent. The brain will always find something. And in one way, that's why our species has survived is because we're always trying to figure out where the next big threat is mm -hmm. coming from. But it doesn't make it any less painful, especially because the likelihood that a bear is going to come into our home and eat us is much less than it was when we were cave people. Not not zero, but less. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, I wish I wish I could absorb and metabolize Moby's cautionary tale of, you know, money and success don't fix everything. But I still have part of my brain that thinks, well, they fix certain things. Yeah. yeah. You know, there is a practical utility, as we've discussed, to some money and some fame, um, but they don't fix the human condition. Correct. You know, they don't they don't they can delay mortality, but not prevent mortality. Mm -hmm. And. You know, it's funny, a friend of mine who's a really, okay, I'm not going to, I'm going to try and say this very diplomatically. A friend of mine who's a very dogmatic Buddhist 
we were having dinner once and you know there are buddha statues everywhere in the world now and there was a buddha statue in the restaurant and i asked my friend who's a very dogmatic buddhist i was like why do you think the buddha's always smiling in the in these pictures or statues or whatever and he was like oh and he gave me this long-winded he's a wonderful person but he gave me this long-winded diatribe about buddhist dogma and he was like, well, because the Buddha has attained a bodhisattva, da 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 and like he, and you know, like blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, I think the Buddha's smiling because he's saying to himself, yeah, I'm still human. Mm. You know, nothing transcends that. Their enlightenment doesn't negate the human condition or transcend the human condition. It just gives you an honest understanding of the human condition. I think, I don't think I'm enlightened, so maybe I don't know. Maybe enlightenment involves like flying around on Falcor. But Falcor from Neverending Story. Oh no, I know. Okay, good. Just confirming. <laughs> I didn't know if that was too old guy of a reference. Like, no, no, I was very close to naming Bagel Atreyu, okay. but she's a girl. <laughs> so, but it's that it it's you know we're we keep sort of coming back to this this idea of like oh like self love. Well, maybe there is maybe there that doesn't isn't a real thing. Maybe there's a more practical part, which is self-appreciation, self-like, self-protection. Maybe enlightenment isn't... I mean, there's a great expression, before enlightenment, you chop wood and carry water. Mm, yeah, After enlightenment, you chop wood and carry water. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. it's the idea that it doesn't change things, really. I, or, But then again, as far as I know, I'm not enlightened. So I, who knows? If I become enlightened and all of a sudden I can see five dimensions and can see colors that no one has ever seen before i'll call you guys up and be like guess what enlightenment is awesome and it's completely the product of wealth and fame right Ooh, have you ever heard of rutger bregman no you guys are just all these names crawl or crawl crumb 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 yeah. andrea gibson rutger Hauer, Begman. rutger bregman he wrote a book called humankind and it talks about what power what he has a whole chapter about kind of how absolute power corrupts absolutely and talks about all these things that start to happen to people when they experience extreme success and find themselves in places of great power mm. on any scale, whether it's you suddenly become the CEO of a company or you are in charge of larger groups of people or people start paying you respect. Like these things start happening to you, like you become a messier eater. There are all these studies that like hmm. you start to care less about even taking care of yourself in certain ways because you start to feel like normal societal things apply less to you, which is hmm. a perspective thing. I think if suddenly you are stricken with power and you don't have the perspective of who you are, what your goals are, what your morals are as a human being on a planet in a universe, then things start to unravel in ways. Hmm. You forget you forget where you are and that we are all a, a, a community of a species. And you know, we live in Los Angeles. Lindy and I used to live in New York. Did you ever live in New York? Mm -hmm. So we've been around wealthy, successful people. For the most part, they're not great. <laughs> I've been around heads of state and religious leaders and movie stars and rock stars and the most successful people on the planet. Generally speaking, my friends who are not 
famous, wealthy, successful are much more interesting and much kinder and much less crippled by a sense of narcissism and entitlement. I'd way rather go out to dinner with some of my good old normal regular friends who I've known for a while than certainly not Elon because Elon's lost his mind. But I have. I'm curious to be around Elon. No, he's not. He's I've we, we used to be friends. He's not fun to hang out with. <laughs> his ex-wife is great. Tallulah. She's amazing. But Elon was just that. Yeah, that that sense of entitlement, like to your point, when you're on the receiving end of so much attention at some point you stop thinking you have to really do anything mm -hmm. and you just kind of show up and you feel like that's enough even like basic respect yeah. goes out the window at a certain point yeah i could tell a funny story of and by the way i almost feel like we're the ones keeping you here like <laughs> like we're monopolizing your time you're you're, you're like okay how do I let them know I have to leave at some point? Like, no. Guess what? The door is locked. We're in the, like, until... We have, the like, the Matt Lauer button. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, you should see my notes that we have. Just yeah. just know I did prepare. I just didn't look okay. at any of them yet. So, so quick, That's my only... If I'm looking down, it's just... Quick, quick, quick little funny story. A friend of mine who's a yoga teacher was doing private yoga for this very, very wealthy, successful musician person who I'm not going to name because I don't need more enemies and arrived at their apartment and the musician lady was naked in the bathtub and she made the yoga teacher give her a foot massage in the bathtub and the yoga teacher was like, okay, but this isn't Aww. my job to give you a foot massage while you're oh naked in the bath. I'm like, dying to know who it was. Will you please tell us after we're done? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. You'll, you'll, <laughs> you'll appreciate it. But it's uh, it's to your point of like people get to that level. They almost start feeling like they can do no wrong. And the moment you start feeling you can do no wrong, it's a guarantee you're doing a lot of terrible things. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, but I also, or not but, but also, I mean, obviously there are good people who have money and there are good people who don't have money and there are, yeah. there are good people who, you know what I'm trying to say. But also too, hopefully with this example, it could be like you were saying about yourself, took you a minute to learn that. Like maybe at your, because you said it of yourself, like there was a point when you got to a level of success that you didn't like how you were treating other people either. So we can hope that this person, you know, has the same experience as you, but I'm sure a lot don't too. Well, what I, what I will say as sort of like a, a slightly glib summation might be, and maybe, I don't know, tell me if you think this makes sense or not, is a lot of people assume that like fame and wealth will make things better. And what I've experienced is it's the people who are able to still be good in spite of fame and wealth that that's those are the impressive exceptions like you mentioned jim carrey like jim is great and a lot of his perspective is the result of going through the maelstrom of fame and wealth and he ended up he's ended up at a really special place it's rare that people can can do that you know more likely you end up like kanye elon or trump yeah yeah, it's it's interesting how we 
what you're the only way out is through or some of these oh that's the expression i, I was like out. the only way in is out the only well, no, I, 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 yeah the only way we, out. we knew what you meant Who, what was it again the only way out is through I oh the only so. way out is through yep that's great okay now i but understand also that it, so, it depends on where yeah, you're going nope, either nope i was wrong okay. yeah <laughs> some cause fallacy the only way yeah. out is through. I'm, yeah. well another one is that you're sort of alluding to and i think that's what we're really saying with this whole conversation about fame and wealth not being the thing that but i've done the same thing like two years ago i got addicted to thinking this one doe dress was like i had to have it and wear it on my birthday and What's then it's this it's just a brand like oh, a dress okay. that and I, that I found on the internet and I bought it for myself and then put it on and I was like oh cool I look like William Shakespeare like sick you know <laughs> but it was kind of cool cuz I sent it back and I didn't have the money for it but I was just like I can buy it and try it I was able to like give myself a mini what you went through of like oh yeah it turns out it's not actually the thing cuz and luckily I didn't like how it fit me but I, I think even if you, if, if it's the dress or if it's the money or whatever it is, wherever you go, there you are. Mm -hmm. You're stuck in there and you have to eat, figure it out. And I think that's, even though it's true, doesn't make it less annoying. And even though we hear these stories, like, you know, for instance, I think I've had conversations with friends in the last year where I've almost been too open and I I think something about I think it, there's something here about comparison too that we haven't said of like in my 20s I felt like oh everybody's struggling like none of us have any money and it's like I got to my 30s and inching towards my mid 30s and now I keep making this joke of like I'm doing really great for like a 25 year old you know like yeah. I have a studio <laughs> apartment I do this weird job I can't afford to get old but like I'll be fine you know today is great which is like mm -hmm. good but to our point of you know at a certain point the things become a bit more complex because we live in capitalism and we live in a you know we have to pay for it and I, I know it'll get sorted I've gotten this far but if I just kept it in the day I today's great. I'm at your house and it's air conditioning and we're Bag having like the here. bagels here. Um, you saw me looking directly at bagel. <laughs> and it's and this is lovely. But if I start to think about like, oh yeah, okay, got it, then that's when it I don't know. Maybe there's something in the your friend's Buddhism that could help me with that. But it's it, I think it's just how it is. <laughs> yeah, that is that's the human condition. Is yeah. thinking like I mean, I'm guilty. I'm 57 years old and I've been through the ringer and I've tried all sorts of different spiritual practices. I still think that, oh, the next thing is going to be better. Like what, what an ambition is really nice, but it has to, I believe that the skill set should be you balance ambition with a deep involvement in and appreciation for what's actually going on right now. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. what, because it doesn't get better than this. It really doesn't. Like, we're healthy. We get to go hiking. Bagels here. We have full stomachs with probably, hopefully, organic food that's good for us, except for Lindsay, who does eat a lot of deep fried I stuff. I love vegan junk food. Yeah. But in any case, you're healthy and great with, in spite of, or helped by a stomach full of deep fried <laughs> something weird. Um, so it's... But those moments of, oh, this... This is great. 
And there's almost always something, and, and again, it might sound like privilege, but there's almost always something great. Mm-hmm. Like I had a question recently, what would my death row meal be? My last meal. And I didn't even have to think about it. Were we talking about this? No. Mm-hmm. Okay. So three walnuts, three perfect organic <laughs> walnuts, an organic orange, maybe just that. Just, I would, because the amount, I almost feel like if you can't, be happy eating a slice of a perfect organic orange nothing's going to make you happy if you can fully invest yourself in that recognizing how miraculous it is that this orange has even come into existence and that it's delicious and it's good for you and it's fun to eat that to me which i clearly expect and assume most people would be dismissive of everything i just said but I just don't know anyone who's found happiness with the bigger things if you can't find happiness with the basic things. Doomies has a buffalo wing. I like how the, basically I, could, I distracted Lindsay by mentioning <laughs> vegan junk food. Everything else, she's like, it's like those cartoons where if you're hungry, the person turns into and a hot dog. Their eyes go Yeah, like exactly. Yeah. yeah, and so basically everything I said, Lindsay was just hearing deep fried garbage, <laughs> deep fried You're garbage. talking about an orange and I'm like... You're like, can you deep fry the orange? By orange, do you mean triple fried with with Oreos? Yeah, I don't know what a vegan turducken is, but that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I think what you're saying is, and and I wrote this down as one of the, I want to, you know, in the time we have left, talk about addiction a little bit. Because, and I think it relates to this a little bit of what, with finding happiness in, in, in what's in front of you or keeping it in the day. And I think when we're not doing that, we're trying to fill some sort of existential, you know, God-sized hole, mm-hmm. as they say, right? And Hungry ghosts. Exactly. We're all, and I think about that so much, you know, I am trying to fill it with one more snack or maybe I need to it's in some of it's conscious, some of it's subconscious, and then maybe becomes conscious, but the Doan dress or the castle or whatever it might be, right? It's really addiction. And so I guess you mentioned spirituality a little bit. And I think, you know, maybe we can flow these two together. But I'm curious where you both are on the spirituality God situation. And I think I heard, were you before the album that you mentioned came out, you were like evangelical or did I? Oh, I have a very bizarre spiritual background. Uh, my mom was a hippie who was into everything. Uh, my, my grandfather worked on Wall Street and he taught at a Presbyterian Sunday school. So like quintessential wasp from Darien, Connecticut. My grandmother volunteered at the local Presbyterian church. And my mom, the hippie, was into Krishnamurti. She threw the I Ching. She had tarot cards. She liked Jesus a lot. She She's just into everything. And cool. so like growing up, we would go to tarot card readings. We would go like, so spirituality was a big part of my life in the most dilettantish hippie way. And then I became a punk rocker. I embraced some punk rock values of like, like reading Nietzsche, uh, reading Aleister Crowley, reading, embracing the surrealists and the Dadaists and... 
And you studied philosophy? I was a philosophy major, and so I was reading, you know, Bertrand Russell and, you know, Kant, Carnap, and Tarski, and all the people you can mention and make people think you're smarter than you are. So I was like into everything, you know, into nihilism, but also into quantum mechanics and into who knows what. And then I became a Christian when I was around 22 years old. And so for eight years, I was a very serious Christian. How did that happen? I was DJing at an all-ages club that was sponsored by this Christian organization. And they they indoctrinated me. And it was because it was very intellectual as well. It was like Kierkegaardian, Thomas Merton-style Christianity. Like C.S. Lewis was sort of their patron saint. Mm. And so I could be an intellectual and a Christian, and I could also be smug and judgmental and look down on other people. We're not regular Christians. We're the smart Christians. We're the Kierkegaardian Christians. We're existential Christians. But we're still dicks. And then... I realized that my Christianity had everything to do with fear and control personally. Like I was so afraid of the world and I was so afraid of the complexity and mess of the world that I found refuge in this dogma and rigidity. And then I jettisoned that in the 90s and became a crazy alcoholic drug addict. And now after being sober, after trying everything I, my spirituality is one of it, it's best summed up in the third step of the 12 steps, which says, made a decision to turn our life and will over to the care of God as we understood God. When I first did that step, I wrestled with it until I realized the God of my understanding is a God I can't possibly understand. Mm. But I somehow naively, foolishly, presumptuously think that there is a divine force a universal spirit, and I like thinking about it. I like hiking and trying to understand it better. I like talking to it. I don't know what it is or even that it is, but I like to engage with it as best I can. And if someone says you're wrong, I'm like, yeah, probably. But it's still that humble belief that there is certainly something greater than humanity. Like humanity is like scared and vicious. Like when I look at nature outside of humanity, to me, there's so much power and strength there. I don't know what to call it, but that's my spirituality. Sure. I, I It's almost like you had a homecoming in a way to where you began with the openness of your mom. But I'm curious about, you kind of glossed over the part about you get indoctrinated. I think just think this is really interesting. Like you get indoctrinated into this smart Christians and then eight years go by and mm-hmm. you're in that. And then you go into, you know, being an addict and then eventually getting sober. That's a pretty stark contrast. Like what was the inciting, was there an inciting incident to get yes. you out of that? And it was, yes, there was such an odd inciting incident in in incited, incited yeah, it. i i so, went for it <laughs> and but it's so odd uh, i mean a lot of stuff that makes sense in my weird adult brain when i say it out loud i'm like oh boy i'm just a crazy person i feel like Lindsay and bagel are very good at humoring me um, <laughs> i mean i feel like that about most of the things i say yeah. so. <laughs> so here's my inciting incident which i think was it was wonderful 
I don't expect it to make sense to anyone. Hopefully it will. Maybe it won't. I don't know. I was walking. I was wrestling with my faith. This was 1995. Time had passed. And I was like, oh, you know, the dogma of Christianity seems so arbitrary. And Christian culture seems so fear-driven and tribal and provincial. I was like, am I really a part of this? I love the teachings of Christ. Forgiveness, humility, non-judgmentalism are wonderful. But I was really wrestling with, I had it was a crisis of faith. And I was at the corner of Bleecker and Lafayette in New York. And I saw some ants on the ground. And the middle of rush hour, people rushing everywhere. I stopped and I squatted down and for about 10 minutes just looked at the ants. And people were bumping into me. People were looking at me like, what? Assuming probably correctly that I was just an insane person. <laughs> And You're was, famous at this point? Reasonably, but not relatively well-known. Not like the, the big stuff hadn't happened yet. And I was looking at the ants, and all of a sudden I had this epiphany. I was like, okay, I'm looking at thousands of ants. On the planet, there are trillions and trillions of ants. Each ant is tiny, but moving around. Like they're breathing. They're, they have optic nerves. They're so complicated. And I was like, I realized I could not begin to describe or understand one cell in an ant's optic nerve. I was like, and that's, and there are a trillion ants with a, each comprised of a trillion cells. And I was like, so here am I having strong opinions about the architect of the universe when I can't even understand one cell in an ant. And the, the absurdity of that struck me. I was like, how dare I have this dogmatic opinion about the architect of the universe when I don't even know where my fingernails come from? So the humility from that, I realized, okay, all I can do is step back and look at the universe and inhabit the universe, but I certainly can't have any dogmatic opinions about it. Did it take some reprogramming then after that? Because here you are, like, so indoctrinated. You have this epiphany. You're like, I'm all set. I'm yeah. on to something else. Yeah. I mean, the guilt of moving past that. But then I started drinking and doing a lot of drugs. And at first I was like, oh, this is an experiment. And then years passed, I'd be in a dive bar by myself. I was like, oh, I think I've gone past the realm of this being an experiment. I'm just a sad old drunk. Wow. I want to talk about getting sober a little bit in a second, but I'm, I want to turn to you, Lindsay. Like, what was your experience? Like, did you grow up with, like, what is your version of that, I guess? I grew up Roman Catholic. Me too. Very intense. And I had a hard time with it. I had a hard time with, like, the gender roles of all of it and the the blatant misogyny and what I came to view as a disrespect for women. Because even when I had this societal teaching that women were meant to be subservient, that was the model. That was what I was modeled. It was what I was told. And so I... Even though that was what I was being shown, I had this sense that it was wrong. And it's something I still battle as those models. And I think many women still battle those models. But it was so blatantly misogynist. And I didn't even have a word for it then. I was just like, all of these priests 
are men. Everyone up on this stage is a boy except for a woman. They'll occasionally let come up and sing a song or read out of their book that was only written by men. It just felt so male in a way that felt, I was like, something's wrong. Something's wrong here. And I also started to see people in my life using religion to exercise violence on other people, to exercise violence on gay people. I also, around this time, starting to be like, am I into the ladies? I was kind of have, like wrestling these feelings of, am I, not only am I a woman, which my church only thinks is for procreating and, you know, being subservient, but I also am, and I ha- I never have read this in the Bible, but the society around this church believes that is wrong as well. And I remember even I was in college and I was having this kind of crisis of faith. And I went to a church that was in town in San Marcos, Texas, and I asked the priest something about this and the struggle. And he became uncomfortable and told me to leave. Hmm. And I was like... <laughs> Yeah, that's something. a pretty avoidance. How how, how how interesting that a priest would be uncomfortable with a woman asking about sexuality. It wasn't even sexuality that I was asking about. I was asking about women and why women were portrayed in this way. I couldn't understand it. I was like, spiritually, how am I supposed to feel vast and feel trusting when this is... I, I, it was a crisis of faith, and he turned me away. And I was like, you know something's wrong here. And so I stopped going to church much to my family's dismay. But I have found, but then for a while I was like, maybe I'm an atheist. Um, Maybe I, maybe I don't believe in God. Maybe because of this crisis of faith that I had, I was like, maybe because the church wasn't real, God isn't real. And more recently through 12-step programs, not necessarily the beverage program, but other programs of the 12-step ideology have started to rethink my perspective on what a divine presence is and the power of that. Because I've also come to understand that if you don't have a God in your mind, you'll start to make things around you into Mm -hmm. God. You'll start to make booze into God. You'll start to make people you're dating into God. You'll start to make a political figure into God. And that's when your life starts to just really get a little topsy-turvy. So I think that the importance of having this concept and reverence for a divine presence that is no person, that is no thing that exists elsewhere is of the utmost importance. And I'm honestly a little bit sad that my experience of Roman Catholicism turned me away from that for such a long time. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's like what I was saying, The we turn to, well, there's that David Foster Wallace thing of whatever you worship, you know, like mm-hmm. it's the trying to fill the God-sized hole, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Were you going to say something, Moby? No, I just had to hit save on the Pro Tools. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Phew. Um, I wonder, though, I, I feel like we might want to... Yeah, I'm going to wrap this up. Okay. okay. I could keep, we, I could, we could keep going. I know. But... Maybe we'll do a part two someday. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll let me... It'd be a three-parter already. Okay. You, <laughs> do you have a second for me to just kind of land of this one? Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, I'll just hit on the addiction thing, and then we'll Great. get out of here. But thank you. I think that that also was, was my experience. But I think there's a, some sort of contrast between the 
Catholic and the Christian of we have so much circumstantial stuff where the my friends who grew up Christian have the Jesus is your friend and there's just a lot of deprogramming mm-hmm. and I think 12 step stuff is good with that. I think related to this conversation that we're having now, you've spoken a lot about meeting your heroes and there's one instance in particular that you told Rick Rubin about how you had the opportunity to meet Neil Young and you said no. Can you talk about why you did that? Yeah. So in the course of my life, I think I mentioned this earlier, I never expected to have any success as a musician. I never expected to have a record deal. I never expected to make music that anyone listened to. I never expected to play concerts that people came to. I really thought I was going to spend my life as a weird academic who made music that no one ever listened to. And then lo and behold, I started having an audience for my music. And then I started being asked to produce and remix other artists or or collaborate with other artists. You know, I mean, the list of people I've worked with is so extensive and baffling from Ozzy Osbourne to Britney Spears to Daft Punk to the Beastie Boys to Freddie Mercury to Outkast to, I mean, just on and on and on. Like this long, crazy list from Michael Jackson to Soundgarden. And so I've been able to meet so many of my heroes and work with a lot of my heroes. And in some cases, you meet your heroes and it's great. You know, like like becoming friends with David Lynch made me like his movies more because he's such a delightful person. But there have been some instances that I, I won't mention where like meeting the person made me it made a challenge to continue to like their work because they were just narcissistic or not nice or what have you. And I was at a party a few years ago and Neil Young was there and a friend of mine said, hey, do you want to meet Neil Young? And I was like, of course I do, because I love Neil Young. I love Neil Young's music. But then that moment, I was like, what if he's having a bad day? What if he's not nice to me? It's going to make it hard for me to love his music as much. And I thought I would err on the side of caution and not meet Neil Young and continue to have this uncompromised love for his music. By the way, I'm sure he's great, but I didn't want to risk it. And why risk a bunch of your favorite songs for a handshake and a picture that goes on Instagram. It's It just didn't seem worth it at the time. I felt that way even with this, when I've had the opportunity to talk to somebody that I, you know, liked their book or their music or their podcast or whatever it is. I'm, I always am nervous mostly because like, oh man, it would color the way we think about people. So I just think that's really interesting. Have you ever... The reason I wanted to ask that was because I'm curious if on the other side of that with people meeting you who are big fans and you can tell because I think, you know, we can tell when people have put us on a pedestal, even if you're not famous, you know, we do that with people. Mm -hmm. And have you felt that pressure to like, oh, be be cool. You don't want to ruin this for them. How do you handle that? Well, pre-sobriety, there were a few occasions where I think people didn't see me at my best, either drunk, hungover, or narcissistic and entitled. But I I try very hard 
it's not a struggle, but I, I try to be respectful of people where they are. And so I certainly, anybody who's willing to make the effort to talk to me, who wants a picture or whatever, I always just say yes. And I try to be as polite as possible because why not? I don't understand the public figures who like have a contemptuous attitude towards their supporters or fans. That's so weird. And also, if you're going to be dismissive or contemptuous towards people, why do you go out to public? I've never understood that. Like when you go into public, you're no longer a private person. You are, if you're a public figure and you're in public, you're at Nobu or a red carpet event, it's real hard to say, please leave me alone. I'm being private. You're on a red carpet. You're, you're, you know, you're on La Cienega surrounded by paparazzi. That's not, it's a lot different. Like if you're at home watching a 30 Rock episode and someone breaks into your house to get a selfie. I can understand being put out there. Or even at the airport or like yeah, somewhere but else. But I do think, so I just try very hard. I don't have people beating down my door trying to get a selfie with me or whatever. But I try to be as polite and respectful as possible. Well, this has been a delight. I'm, I'm so grateful for both of you taking the time. And like I said, I didn't look at my notes except one time so hopefully we do this <laughs> I again I feel like we, we have to apologize to you because I feel like we took so much of your time like we're the Lindsay I think we're terrible interview subjects I think we monopolized like I'm sure that like 45 minutes ago you were like come on guys I'm hungry no. I have to go to the bathroom let me please let me leave we're very much like and another thing well I don't yeah. even know if you know that the name of this podcast is if he told you but it's called let it out so we always end by letting out a deep breath together but the by the nature of the beast it's it is long and you've met me so I I'm I, did I, I jump the gun it. on letting out a deep breath no I, no let's, I don't yeah, think you, you can did. do let's too all do many it together yeah okay. I think the more the better okay. yeah ready bagel Bagel. Okay. Okay. Inhale. Let it out. (sighs) Oh, that's nice. It always feels better, right? Yeah. I think maybe I should start with that. Yeah. (laughs) But then you have a very calm podcast. More like an ASMR. Might be nice. Um, But that's my thing. I try to get people, I think about 45 minutes in, we sort of forgot we were doing this and just became friends, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, let me turn off Pro Tools. Thank and I... you so much. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Was there anything else you wanted to get in here before we do We got stop? so much in here. Oh, man. All right, well, I'm really glad we're doing this. I feel very warmed up, but I was thinking on the drive over here, listening to both of you, I, and I kind of had to pull myself away from my spending time with you the last couple of days preparing for this and I was sort of annoyed to have to get out of my car to, and stop the episode to come listen to you in real life which is so <laughs> silly and the episode I was listening to is my favorite so far where you are talking about anxiety and music and at one point you go through a song and break down how you make an ambient track. And there's this very sweet moment in particular where you, Lindsay, well, Moby, actually, you say to Lindsay, oh, you love this. Like, this is your favorite part. And I forget what exactly it was called. It's, oh, it's, it's a, a back speci- and forthy. Yeah, it's a special <laughs> sort of audio stereo trick where you pan things left and right. Because saying to someone, like, this is your favorite part, could sound presumptuous or except that Lindsay has repeatedly said how much she loves when audio pans back and forth. Yeah. Well, the reason I bring it up is because 
that exact thing is so cozy to me when someone like I kind of making fun of and if it is from someone that knows you and loves you it's sweet because it just shows that they see you and know you and like it's intimacy so it was such a sweet moment of your friendship that I really loved and that goes throughout all of these episodes and there's a lot of duos in podcasting and there's a, several that I can think of that I'm sure you both can think of from back in radio time to now there's something that only a duo can do however when it works it works and when it doesn't it super doesn't and you <laughs> two have such a lovely dynamic so I'm curious you know it like it like I said it shows that you're really good friends and have this very sweet friendship that you have these bits that you do with each other and there's these sweet segments and when did you get the idea that you wanted to do a podcast together I guess it was about a year ago mm -hmm. uh, because for the last five or six years pretty steadily people have been asking me to do a podcast you know like I mean because as you know there's so many podcast companies in the world and I don't when I say people have been asking me to do a podcast, it's not that they thought I'd be good at it, but I feel like they were just asking everybody. You <laughs> yeah, know, like some, totally. some podcast company would <laughs> send out a form letter. Like, so for years I was like, no, I, I kept saying no to the idea of doing a podcast. But then Lindsay and I were talking and I realized a few things. One, just how much fun it would be f to sit down once a week or every two weeks with Lindsay and just talk about anything, to talk about animal rights, to talk about weird jokes, to interview people we find inspiring. And just all of a sudden, it made sense to me and felt really compelling to me, not as like a revenue stream commercial exercise, which is not to malign people who are able to have revenue streams and have their podcasts be commercial. But for us, it just seemed like an organic extension of our friendship mm -hmm. and a way to create a platform that is not contingent upon or reliant upon algorithms from big corporations. And what I mean about that is, for example, if you post something you care about on Instagram, right. Sometimes it does well, sometimes it fails, largely based on their algorithms. And I feel like we've got this whole generation of people who've spent all their time figuring out how to catch the algorithm. And that seems like a really odd criteria to apply to meaningful content, as yeah. opposed to just create content that you care about, have meaningful conversations, and you put it out there, and it's it's unfiltered, it's unalgorithmed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. The The last episode that I did for this, we had a conversation. The, the person I was speaking with has a podcast studio and she helps produce other people's podcasts. And so we had this very like inside baseball-y podcast <laughs> talk that covered a couple of those things because I started doing this in 2013. Wow. It was really different when than, you were when you were nine <laughs> <laughs> 22 um but it i've seen it change so much as we all have you know no one knew what a podcast was then so like the fact that mine was on itunes was like oh she's on itunes when like yeah. really there's like no gatekeepers like anybody could i just 
figured it out. Kind of like saying like, wow, that she's on the internet. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but back then, like, it was kind of, you know, no one, it, people I didn't, didn't know, know what a podcast was. was in 2013. Yeah. I kept trying, I remember back then, I kept trying to listen to them. And I was like, and I was like, how do you find podcasts? Like, where, and it seemed like it was this cool, hidden world that I just couldn't figure out. A lot of people f- felt like that. And, and like, I do you think, need to get a special app? Do yeah, you need to have totally. special headphones? Do you need, like, do you have to join a club? Totally. For so long when I, first of all, it was kind of embarrassing. I mean, it's still, and I think now it's more embarrassing because it's more mainstream or anyway, but that's one other conversation of like, what is cool? But I would say, I oh yeah, I have this podcast and you know, kind of whisper it and people would be like, yeah, exactly. Like, how do I, what, is it on your phone? Like, where do you, is it on TV? You know, like nobody really knew. But anyway, the person I was talking to, we were having this conversation like about all of these changes and she said the same thing of like now, oh, she had just been to a um, summer camp where she talked to these teen girls about, it was like an audio summer camp, which is so cool. That's amazing. I know, right? And she, you know, talked to them about podcasting and making, and I was like, tell me everything. Like, are they into it? Do they think it's cool? Where do they listen? Like, what are the, what are they saying? And she was like, yeah, they're into it. None of them listen on iTunes, but they all listen on Spotify and they're really into this and this and this. And and then what she was saying is like, to your point, what's cool about this medium is that we're not chasing the algorithm. It, when you have the way we listen, isn't related to that. And the skill of chasing an algorithm is so um, untransferable, you know, Mm -hmm. like learning to make things, you know, whether people see it or not, like that will help you in the future. But chasing the algorithm is not a transferable skill because the algorithm changes. It's silly, like also out of our control, sort of, I think. And anyway, I just agree. (laughs) And the one thing I will also say uh, is since we started doing this, I've, and this might sound a little bit esoteric or flowery, but I've come to see podcasting in general, not all of them, but as being sort of a sacred, magical space. Mm. And I know that might sound silly to a lot of people because they're like, it's podcasting. It's not sacred. It's not magical. But where else in life do you have people who sit down, aspire to have meaningful conversations and listen to each other mm-hmm. and aren't on their phones and yeah. there's also yeah. no distractions from even if the three of us were out to dinner right now and not on our phones or on a walk which is also fun like to if we did a hike together but it's a different thing because we'd be like oh my god there's a turtle you know and it's more <laughs> distractible but this year to be fair now i got excited i was like you've seen turtles in, in griffith park no but the okay. hike that i do every day <laughs> have you guys ever done deb's and i love deb's yeah there's I, a lot there's a lot Lots of turtles on so there. I'll show you, really? I oh, can yeah. show you okay. photos on my phone after this because okay. I took a ton today. It's a great hike. Yeah, I do it every morning, but I have to go so early. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, even like my friends who are like super smart and funny, when when we meet up, it tends to just be like sardonic banter. Yeah. Like you don't sit down and listen. You don't talk in a meaningful way. And I, I so... The, the longer we've been doing this, I've come to really like have a, this almost like reverence for podcasting. 
And obviously not all of it. Like there's a lot of like, you know, people who are like, oh, we need to make money. So let's have a podcast about a murder in New Jersey or something. You know, like sure. the people who are sort of like chasing the podcast algorithm trend. as a, right. yeah, the trend. But apart from that, like it's people using this space like yourself to address, you know, or at least a, either address or aspire to addressing meaningful things. Well, you know, I think and I, I'm curious if this has been your experience with the two of you, because just by having this piece of machinery between all of us and me having a container of like someone pulling the thread and often Lindsay in the case of of your show with Moby it's you who you know has the agenda of like keeping making sure that this topic is covered and and I think that having those two things allow conversations to go into different places than they would even you know for the sake of argument, like even if we were not recording, you know, and I've talked to strangers, of course, in this format. And, you know, then I'm asking questions and directing it to places. But I've also found that I've had some of my best friends on this. And it's such a different conversation than I'd have with them elsewhere. And I found out things that I never would have. Has that been your experience from doing this? Have you learned more about Moby? Well, I've learned more about Moby, but also I feel like it's very rare that you sit down to have a conversation with someone and you're like, okay, start from the beginning. Yeah. From the minute you were born, I want to know why you were the way that you are. I feel like if you say that to someone at like a dinner party, they're like... (laughs) Whoa. <laughs> yeah. This is a lot. And, this is not and, the right time. You know what I mean? Unless they're like a public figure narcissist. And they're like, great. And they're like, they're like let me just open my Wikipedia page and I'll recite it to you. Yeah. <laughs> Read this. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's rare that you get to go so deep with another person in, you know, in a container, in the container of, you know, a podcast interview. It's great. It's a, such a, it's a way to have a meaningful conversation that you don't really get elsewhere. So. Yeah. What has this felt like to you? So you, you said about, you know, several years ago, people came to you wanting to do a podcast. And then how did the two of you decide that you would do this? Were Do you listen to a lot of podcasts? Were you excited about the idea? I love podcasts. I listen to podcasts every day, most days. Um, And we were trying to figure out what to do. We were like, okay, podcast, let's try it. And we were trying to figure out what our in was, like what, and we actually did some like kind of practice episodes with friends of like, how could this work? What is this going to be? We thought we were going to do a fully different thing Mm. um, that was only about, I don't know if we, we were going to do one that was only about creativity that was called the silliest name on the planet, which is the creative block nest monster. <laughs> oh, I kind of like be, that. To be fair, Lindsay came up with the title. I, lo- I love it. I love it. But if you want puns that you both will adore and be made uncomfortable by, Lindsay is very good at that. I'm really good at uncomfortable puns that yeah. make you both cringe and, you know, laugh with glee. Um, <laughs> well, if that's any indication. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> um, but then we decided that felt a little bit like it was painting us into a corner creatively. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to be able to have conversations with people um, 
that was anyone about anything as long as it felt meaningful to us. So we decided to keep it a little bit more more general. Though I do think one day we should post the graphic of us with um, our heads on the Loch Ness Monster bodies. Our, our, our friend Mike made a graphic for the creative Loch Ness Monster, and it's two Loch Ness Monsters with the most rudimentary Photoshop of our faces as the heads of these <laughs> Loch Ness monsters. Oh like it looks like it was done in 1990 intentionally because he's a really gifted designer, but he made it look like he's like a junior in high school who made it in 1998. Can If you can send it to me, can I post it with this episode? Yes. <laughs> we still have it yet. Do you have I have it? it. Okay, great. Wow. I'm also kind of like, maybe hold on. Maybe we edit this out because... That could be a future idea. I think that has legs or whatever the Loch Ness Monster swims that has, with. <laughs> that has mythical fins. Yeah, totally. Flippers. Yeah, I'm kind of into that. <laughs> so you, were, so he comes to you, you know, with the idea and you were like, I'm in? Mm-hmm. Well, we have, Moby had a production company called Little Walnut. And in the pandemic, I was furloughed from my other production company job where I was working in development and I was talking to Moby and I was like, I don't know, I feel like I want to work in development, but at a company that I really care about what they're doing. And it has something to do with animal rights or the environment or climate change or something. And a few weeks later, he was like, well, why don't you come run my company, my little walnut? So we've been working on a ton of stuff and trying to figure out how we can make content that addresses animal rights and animal cruelty and veganism and climate change and mental health and all the things that we care about. And the podcast felt like the perfect place to talk about all those things whenever we want with whoever we want. And it it felt like it made so much sense. Yeah. And it has so far. Yeah, it's your blank canvas because I guess thinking about that episode that I mentioned with ambient music, like that feels like something that could have been, especially the act two of it, where you go through the track, that seems like something that could have been on the creative blackness monster Mm -hmm. and you're doing it, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. But then we've also gotten to talk to amazing activists and psychiatrists and, you know, these mental health professionals that bring their own creativity to these very important jobs um, and vocations that they've undertaken. So it's been it's been great to get to expand it out in that way, too. Yeah, it gives you more freedom than the previous idea would have, mm-hmm. but you're also able to do that, which yeah, is exactly. great. It seems like you guys have this cadence with each other, and like I said, this familiarity that works really well on this platform. For what it's worth... I'm glad that you're not drinking coffee. Oh, yeah. The reason being, <laughs> I have made one of the worst cups of coffee I've had in my entire This is so, I'm like, I rarely have coffee. But wait, how, why is it bad? You would I, think you have, you'd have your, like, you know, your methodology worked out. But I, okay, so I think what happened was I bought, or do you remember, I briefly had a house up in Idlewild, California which is this beautiful mountain town about two hours from here. I've always wanted to go. It's um, beautiful. It's really special. It's a magical, wonderful place. And I had a house there briefly. And when I moved into that house, um, I bought a bag of organic coffee. This was about <laughs> four years ago. Oh, no. And that bag of organic coffee then moved. When I sold the house up there, it moved back 
did Los Angeles with me, and it's just been sitting for four years. And I don't think four years of ground coffee sitting in the fridge in a bag has Ooh. done it any favors. So, like, I think the beans might have survived, but a ground, ground as bean, soon as you said ground, I know, same. Yeah. Right? It's got a shorter shelf life. Yeah. So, this is. I'm real. I would be so ashamed if I had made you a cup of coffee and you were drinking it. Cause you, cause I'm sure because you're such a nice person, you'd be polite and you'd be like, "No, it's fine." And then you would leave and you'd be like, "Wow, I really enjoyed talking to Moby and Lindsay, but that was the worst cup of coffee anyone has ever made in the history of bad cups of coffee." And then you wouldn't release our podcast, and yeah. then you would yeah. just make a whole episode about how yeah. bad Moby's coffee making. Yeah, because everyone and, knows you as being a coffee maker. Why am I still so. drinking it? Though it is fun to watch you endure that cup of coffee, even though we both know that you hate it and it's old ground. Old, like I mean, uh, it still has caffeine, I assume, but it's yeah. so gross. Okay, so I don't know if this <laughs> is. Caffeine also has to dwindle. I would one would think. I can't. I can't do it. I can't. I'm. I oh think no. don't even endure it for the for the caffeine because I feel like that probably if if the taste has gone diminished that much, the caffeine we have to assume one has assumes, to as well. Yeah. Well, wait. So, what should we do? Do you want to go make a different cup of coffee? No, because I don't have any other coffee. Oh god. So I'm going to let you guys talk for a second. I'm going to go dump this off the railing. Okay. So for the next thirty seconds, I will be dumping this terrible cup. Because of coffee. we can't even have that coffee in here. It has wow. to be in the dirt. Where it belongs. Do you want to smell it? Yeah. I'll smell it, yeah. I kind of want to, I kind of am curious to taste it. Like, what does terrible okay, coffee taste like? It doesn't smell that like? bad to me. And you, you, but it that, probably tastes, from that thought, is it like wonder. very acidic or something? No, it just tastes like gross. It's not, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know coffee yeah. well. I don't know how but it But you know enough to know, is it, it like very good. acidic? No, not at all. Just wrong. Um... <laughs> it's hard to put it your it smells normal it smells perfectly yeah, fine because i don't i think coffee is just gonna smell like coffee but it I'm, it tasted sorry, I, don't I don't know how to explain it not like that though not like it but i see where you're going with it tasting acidic like as if something has expired usually that's why that's i had to happened. stop drinking coffee was the acidic because no. i was starting to get terrible nausea and acid reflux every time i drank oh, a cup no. of coffee which is why i'm drinking the matcha now yeah that happens i to had me to do sometimes. the switch but i try so to like it, have it after i like eat something before yes because the morning coffee i would just, it just started my day off where i was like Hi. well i guess i'm gonna be sick for the first two hours of my oh, day God. every day <laughs> lovely yeah um by the way okay so sorry for wasting your time with no. both bad coffee and my long soliloquy about bad coffee okay okay <laughs> well when you said that, I'm so glad you didn't have a didn't say yes to a cup of coffee. I I was like, oh okay, because I thought you were. I thought it was like a. Um, I was coming in hot, like really energized or something, and I, <laughs> and I was like, okay, but it was for a totally different reason. Yeah, full of surprises. I know. <laughs> okay, you just heard my conversation with Moby and. My new friend, my other new friend, Lindsay Hicks. I, I really loved this conversation, as I said many times in in this, and you just heard it. You hopefully loved it too, if you're still here now. I'm so grateful to be back recording podcasts. I have many coming up, and I'll just give you a little update on me. Like I said, Spiraling is back in season. The show that I 
co-host with Serena Wolf, my friend. It's about anxiety. It's about mental health. And it's season five. And it's releasing every other week right now. The first two episodes are out now. If you want to go listen to that, let me know. And if not, you know, onward. I'll see you next week here for a fresh episode of this podcast. And I have a Substack now, like like everyone does, like everyone has a podcast, everyone has a Substack, everyone has a TikTok. I haven't downloaded TikTok onto my phone yet, but you know, it's probably around the corner. But if you want to learn more about what's going on with me, that's probably the best place to, to do so. I send it out, I would say weekly, but hasn't been the case. I aim for weekly and it goes out about once a month. And uh, I'm here in Montreal, Canada. I did what I was calling my month away to focus on my work, my exile <laughs> from social plans and being around friends all the time, which I love in LA, but I needed a, a little break to catch up on things. And I didn't catch up as much as I wanted to, but I did do some. And that's sort of what the last let it out list letter, that's my Substack. That's what that's about if you want to read more about that. And I started a new podcast producing gig with my my good friend, Michelle. If you remember Michelle and Wallace of Holisticism and the 12th House podcast, they were on the show a couple months ago. And Wallace went to grad school, so I have been in her spot, co-hosting with Michelle over there at the 12th House. So if you want to hear even more of my voice, somehow, some way... There's a lot of me podcasting right now. Three shows with my voice on it. That's a a lot. Perhaps too many. So I get it, you know? You can pick a lane or you can drive through all of them. But again, I love you. Thank you so much for being here. This podcast is edited by the incredible Brianna Bain. And I will speak to you next week. Bye-bye.